Hi, I'm Mick Cronin and this is What's Your Cause, a podcast in which I interview a variety of guests about a cause that is close to them, something they feel passionate about. I want to start conversations that educate, inspire and shine a light on causes around the globe that can or are having a significant social impact. But here's the kicker. Each guest will nominate the next and become a chain that will lead from my very first guest to my last and ultimate guest of season one, Barack Obama. Got your attention? Thought I might. So hello and welcome to episode 15 of What's Your Cause? We're going to do something different uh, today. So um, as the year is winding down and I'm waiting to secure a few more guests um, after after the holiday season, I thought, why not? go back to where it all started and why not do a little bit of a compilation um, episode recap a little bit on on where it all started and and where it all took its you know its first kind of steps in episode one you hear from bianca who speaks a little bit about that leadership and especially around um you know women and so we delve into that a little bit um into bianca's kind of journey as a, a professional sportswoman and and you know what she's doing now in in that leadership role, and how she's supporting young women to um, to progress in, in in that way, and to identify leaders and, and to support them to be leaders. And then from that, we kicked off the nominations. So you'll hear in episode two, then we moved to uh, to Gus Warland from Gotcha for Life, and uh, we spent an amazing episode speaking about mental fitness and. This episode, I think, um, captured a lot of people's attention and, and really supported and helped a lot of people. And I got a lot of messages on the back of it, which were pretty incredible and, and some quite moving and so forth. And I think the, the main thing that came from it was that for people that listened to the episode, it helped them in conversations they could have with other people around mental fitness and so forth, because it is a really challenging topic. And I think, you know, the work that Gus does and how he explains it was was incredible and really made a lot of sense and resonated with a lot of people but also gave people I think a little bit of confidence to to approach these conversations with with loved ones or, or people that you know that are in their life so that was episode two and then we moved to um to Kat Cashel and 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 Kat incredible story her backstory is just you know, every time I hear it or, you know, you read a little bit about it, it just, it blows me away. So to have the opportunity to sit down with her and talk about that was incredible. But what we focused on that episode was around the kindness factory um, and the work that that does and registering, you know, acts of kindness. And, you know, the work that Kat's doing to try and really bring kindness to the world and, and get it embedded in curriculum um, in the US and, and obviously Australia. And then obviously she's talked about, you know, Europe as well is incredible. And since then, Kat actually released a book, um, Kindness, and, and, and you can, you know, have a read of that. It's, a, it, it's a incredible, the work that she does. And I think, yeah, that episode was really a great episode to step back and go, yeah, kindness costs nothing but such such an amazing thing for others and, and such a high reward in doing it. So that was episode three. Then we went overseas. So this was always going to be an interesting one because of our first time delving into in, into the US and obviously recording times and, and linking up with people. And guest number four was Seth Maxwell, who you know was the founder of the Tours Project and, and also the founder and CEO, CEO of Legacy Youth Leadership. So we speak a little bit about both of them organizations, his kind of leadership and work and in building them and how they kind of, you know, um, started in the, in, the, in the early kind of days and, and what they've led to and the impact of that and, and really just really inspiring work. Uh, if you think about where Seth was at at, at what a young age, I think he was like 19, setting out with his friends to tackle the you know world uh, water kind of crisis, um, and what you know Tours Project was able to do, and now how he's kind of taken that, and now he's you know working on on legacy youth leadership, and and again progressing you know the next line of leaders and um, to take action on social causes so so from there we went to Ziad Ahmed and and uh, and talk about feeling old um in that sense as Ziad you know started his first company at Tourteen and where we kind of ended up landing and that was redefined and we kind of you know went through to what he's kind of second company that he started which is uh Juve Consulting and and really Ziad I like you know he's very humble and probably plays himself down a little bit but he's such a voice for his you know generation and the work that you've consultancy is doing was incredible and I just think it was a really for me a really interesting conversation you know to 
to have someone like Ziad speak on the topics and kind of give his take on the world and, and the importance of Gen Z and, and how, you know, they should have a seat at the table and how they're kind of amplifying voices was just, uh, yeah, was was just a treat for me and and, um, and to see what he's achieved in such, uh, you know, at such a young age. As I say, he'd be forgiven for, you know, taking the foot off and, and sitting back and going, look what, look, look what I've done. But he continues to be a force in this space and uh, you can only imagine what he's going to achieve in the next 10 to 20 years as well. So from Ziad, we went to Lewis Carr and he's the president of media sales for uh, BET Networks. So, you know, when you're interviewing everyone, the beauty of, of, of this podcast is I wasn't always familiar with the, the work and the, the causes of the, the guests and some of the guests I'd, I'd, I'd actually never would never have heard of and obviously that's a beautiful thing for me because I get to chat with these amazing people learn lots of new things but also share some of the great work that they're doing um, as well and and look Lewis is just wow he, he was so wise so warm and the conversation I just yeah absolutely adored and he talks a little bit about the waymaker, about waymakers, and who's been a waymaker from him, and and how everyone you know should look and identify who are the people that have you know helped them to get where they are, and and taking the time to get to help people to get where they are, and and how you can pass that you know how you can pay that forward, and that's where you know we'll probably leave it today. Like I'm I'm probably going to do these episodes where I kind of spend some time reflecting on it, um, and also spend some time sharing you know maybe what i i got from it as well and and uh, and and hopefully giving new listeners an opportunity to come in and, and hear a little bit about you know what the concept was how it's kind of progressed and and just the most important thing how many great causes there are out there and how many great people they are and um, driving them as well so so with that let's just jump in to episode 15 of what your cause Bianca, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mick. I'm so excited to be the number one guest. Although I don't think I'm the number one guest, I'm the first guest. The number one guest will be when you get to Barack Obama. Is that right? <laughs> that that could be right. But I would like you to think as you are the number one guest. Okay. I want every guest to think they're the number one guest. <laughs> but we'll start with that. But yes, you are the very, very first guest. So I have to thank you for actually um, agreeing to do this. I'm not sure you know you get yourself into, but um, I really, really want to thank you for, uh, for being the first guest. And there's no pressure, but if this does not get to a second guest, then it is your fault. Then it's on me. Okay, well, you know what? Lucky I like pressure, hey? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. So, Bianca, what's your cause? My cause, and I think what I'm passionate about uh, in a way that is not necessarily always structured you know, support of a cause, but just I channel so much of my work into this space. And and that is supporting women and girls, empowering women and girls to be the very best version of themselves. And I've figured that out probably along the way as an athlete and as a teacher and things that I have learned and seen, I guess, that are missing. Um, and just uh, how how easily females, and I say females only because that's what I know, obviously, being a female myself, um, but seeing this, how quickly you can lose confidence in yourself and how quickly you can um, change direction, you, you lose track of what your dreams might be or what you, where you really want to go or goals that you might have simply because you lose that belief. And it can be from a number of different things that might happen in your life and I just am always truly of the belief that I've learned myself that if you can learn to lead and manage yourself and support yourself and believe in yourself, that it might not be that big picture dream that you had. You might not get there, but you might get somewhere better. And But you have to have that belief first. So um, any chance I get, I like to work in the space um, with women and girls and, and just being a, a 
simply and probably firstly a place of support and encouragement and you know anywhere that I can add value and probably add some whether it's education into these people's lives um, and to try and share some of what I've been through um, to yeah help and support young girls um, especially on their way to whatever it is they want to do and it doesn't have to be sport related it can be anything but yeah I just feel like there's this real crucial time in a girl's life where they might struggle to find that belief in themselves what do you think is important steps going forward what do you see as what we everyone should be doing to support you know the next generation of young females coming through potentially well I think well from my perspective um and it doesn't matter whether it's us looking onto the, the generation below or two generations ahead of us looking at us I it comes down to simply just listening and listening to what who they are, what they need, how they operate in the world and not projecting on how we do things to them because that might not work in their generation and how their world operates. So that's why I love what I do and the work that I do with young people because I learn so much from them about how they how they how they need to feel and how they want to feel because that was very different to how I've wanted to feel when I was younger. And they're, they're open, much more open than I was to talk about their feelings. They're much more open to be able to tell you if they're having a really bad day. And a lot of the time we look at that and we don't know how to deal with that. We don't know how to deal with a young person, male or female, saying, I'm, I'm really struggling. I'm not coping at all. I don't know what to do. And a lot of the time as adults, we look down at that and go, oh, no, everything will be okay. Just be positive. You'll be fine. And I think that's where we all have to really stop and think, no, we've got to actually listen and, and let and be in this space with them that it's okay to not feel okay. But then how can we then just help support them, ask them what they need for support? We can't tell them what they think they need. They need to tell us and then we offer that support at where we can. So listening is the most crucial thing for all of us, no matter what generation or whoever we're talking to. I think we really actually need to listen to each other rather than just think we have to fix the problem for everybody. And are you going to just design and, um, you know, um, start a couple more leadership programs? Yeah. Well, I'm, uh, again, trying to learn to say no to a lot of things, but I'm just a lo- channeling a lot of my energy into more specific projects. So definitely with my academy, I'll continue to do that. Um, and I do I'll still do a few um, public speaking, but the media's got all my attention at the moment with the commentary and Fox Sports. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm so open to wherever life takes me, which, again, I love that adrenaline rush. <laughs> I don't know if it's a good thing or not, but uh, yes, I'm also learning not to be as competitive. Life, athlete life, I've left that behind me. I was so super competitive and now I just have this much more calmer interior where I don't have to always be the best or, you know, tell people that if they say I can't do something and I went, I'll show you. I've really started to lose that ability and I actually am very grateful that I don't have that anymore. Always learning, hey? Always learning, forever learning, always listening. That's what we've got to be doing. So, Goose Warren, welcome to uh, What's Your Cause. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you very much, mate. Lovely to hear from you. Um, our common mate, Bianca Chatfield, said you're a good man and a good chat, and I love your accent, mate. Like, uh, hard not to fall in love with the Irish accent. <laughs> I'm actually Australian. I just put this on so I can get people to fall in love with me, Gus. So, it'll wear off by the end. <laughs> so, Gus, what's your cause? Yeah, I started a foundation called Gotcha for Life just over five years ago and that came off the back of a TV show I did called Man Up on the ABC and Man Up started because I wanted to challenge masculinity in this country and why we lose so many blokes every day to suicide and that started off the back of a mate of mine who took his own life on the day that his third and final child finished their final year 12 exams and it just absolutely rocked me and I sat in silence for many many years and then eventually on my radio show here in Sydney one morning on Triple M, I spoke about it, and that started this journey for me that I continue every day now, um, just around why blokes in particular, but but all Australians and all humans, really, if you look at the numbers around the world, don't have the emotional muscle to put their hand up and ask for help when things are going um, badly or things are starting to go down a rabbit warren. Why are we so good at helping other people that ask us for help, but not very good at asking for help ourselves? So. 
that's really what it comes down to. And I'm trying to take away the white coat and the wellness sort of patches around it and really talk about this as a human issue and make it as easy as possible for people to build emotional muscle so they can ask for help. And that's really in a nutshell what I've been doing. And Gotcha for Life has, you know, fundraised nearly $11 million, given it to people that work in suicide prevention. I think there's way too much focus on awareness, not enough focus on action to actually stop what's happening or try to stop what's happening. If you don't know that we've got a problem with mental fitness or what people call mental health in this country, then you've grown up under a rock. So we need to realize that everyone knows it and let's give us some, some tools to be able to help us get through it. What has surprised you the most since you've started this, on a good or a bad? Like, what is the, is there, like, there's probably many things. Is there something that just go, Jesus, I never thought that when I started this? Well, there's, a couple of, there's a couple of good things, a couple of bad things. Firstly, when someone walks up to you and says, you saved my life, and you're like, wow, and I thank you for sharing that, and I go, well, why? And they will tell you the story, whether it's someone that watched the Man Up program or someone in a room that I've spoken to that it just triggered something to make them talk which they believed has helped them get through whatever life had thrown at them they're the amazing moments you know and that's happened maybe a few hundred times to me in the last five years and that is amazing i remember the first time someone did it i was running the half marathon in canberra and i was going slow and i was going out to a point where you turned around and came back into the city and this bloke flew past me back and he's like gus you saved my life and i was like Thank you. <laughs> and a couple of mates were with me and they're like, did he say that you saved his life? I said, I think so. And he goes, I wonder what that was about. Anyway, we struggled around, got to that point, came back in, got back to the finishing spit and this skinny bloke who looks like you, yeah. you know, with a like one of those silver sheets around him trying to stay, you know, um, warm, nibbling on a banana and a muesli bar. And he had waited because he wanted to tell me, you know, this story. And it was like he'd gone to tell his mum and dad goodbye, but he wasn't going to say goodbye, goodbye. He was just seeing them for the last time because he was going to kill himself. And he knocked on the door and his mum answered the door and they were just about to start to watch this show called Man Up. And he hadn't watched ABC for like his whole life. He'd gone to Bunnings. He'd bought the rope. He was doing it. That night, and he um, and he sat down with his dad, and his mum made them a cup of tea, and he watched the show, and it just triggered something in him to go, oh, maybe there's something in this sort of talking about it stuff. Maybe I should tell someone, but he didn't have the emotional muscle right there to talk to mum and dad. So he um, he decided to come back the following Wednesday and watch the next one, and his dad goes. Oh, that'd be good. Why don't, we, why don't you come for dinner? You know where this story's going. He watches the third one. He eventually tells his mum and dad the whole thing. They get him the help required. And now we're six years on. And I speak to him quite regularly. And he runs now. He was so depressed. He had forgotten that he was a runner. Wow. He just got so tired and so struggled to get out of bed that he just forgot that running made him feel good. So that moment and the fact that he saw me at that race, it just put this big bow around it for him to go, I've got to run. That's going to keep my mental health and my physical fitness and my mental fitness all wrapped into one. So when you hear stuff like that, that's pretty cool. And you go, I'm, I'm lifting, I'm going to keep doing this. And then the sadness comes from how many knockbacks you get when you ask for help. And it's not because people don't want to help. They just don't understand what you need and they don't understand the problem. And even when you tell them the seven, two and one every 28 seconds, seven men, two women, one attempting every 28 seconds, they get blown away by that, but it doesn't move them enough or you don't get them in the safe enough space to, for them to really sit in it, to be able to then go, you know what, my company can really help you. Whether it's a check, whether it's a, they can use something like, I went to an accounting firm and they said, we can't give you any money but we'll do your books. And I go, that'll do. That'll save me $15,000 a year in accountancy fees and, Absolutely. And, all, and all the paperwork that needs to be done at the end of financial year. So thank you. you know, so you're a partner. You've given a junior partner this job. It makes them feel good that they're helping us. Yeah. You're saving us 15 grand. You didn't have the money, but now they might have the money. Like you get to fall in love with a cause and you go, you know what? 
we can't afford it or we're all going to run at the next uh, city to surf for gotcha and we might fundraise 20 grand or whatever it might be. So it's just about building these relationships. But as you know, it's the nose, it's the knockbacks that knocks you for six because you just feel helpless. Yeah. And you have to ask literally knock on a hundred doors to get one yes. And that's exhausting. And that's, that's where I find it frustrating and sad. So Kat, welcome to Watch Your Cars podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Thank you for being guest number three. So Kat, what's your cause? My cause is Kindness, or I guess more specifically Kindness Factory. So I'm the founder of Kindness Factory, which is, a, I guess it's a, it's, it's a not-for-profit in structure, but more so I like to think of it as a, a global movement of kindness where we encourage people from all walks of life to engage in an act of kindness, at least for themselves or others, um, at least once a day, that kind of thing. Um, and across the years, it's gained a lot of momentum. Um, in that we've registered f- over 4 million acts of kindness and it's now in schools across the world, which is fantastic. Um, and really, I guess my secret mission has become to redefine or to to highlight the strength of kindness. Um, so I think so often it's seen as a bit of a, a nice to do um, rather than a need to do. Um, and I really think that that narrative needs to start to to shift a little bit so that people can really and truly understand and appreciate the power of kindness. I, I would love to know and unpack a little bit about, you know, what your aims were when you started this, uh, the Kindness Factory. Where you thought it might get, like, what was your initial goal? And where did you kind of have that moment where you're thinking, this is something, you know, that uh, that I really want to pursue? Um Initially, it was always just going to be a social media page to my full-time job. I had a great job in sport. Um, I've been through a fair bit in life, um, which I know this podcast isn't about, but I guess it sets up some context um, as to why I do what I do. I've broken my back twice on two separate occasions and had to learn how to walk again. Um, So I spent a lot of time in hospitals, rehab centers, and amongst that also lost my partner to suicide. And you don't go through things like that in life um, and come out on the right side of it seeking kindness or pursuing kindness or inspiring kindness without receiving a lot of it yourself. And so a good example of that, um, when I was in a wheelchair, um, I think I'd just been told that it was very unlikely that I'd ever walk again. And I was in- incredibly crushed. I'd, you know, I was a professional athlete and here I am, not, not, not only am I not able to play the sport that I had wanted to do for the entirety of my life, but I was never going to walk again. And I walked out of that, well, no, sorry, I didn't walk out. I wheeled out of that meeting in my wheelchair. And as you can imagine, it's a pretty confronting task, right? It's a pretty, it's a, it's pretty confronting news to have just received. And it was in a rehab environment and wheeled out of that, that meeting room and I got to the elevator and I'm sat there in my chair and all I kept thinking was I'm struggling to breathe. Like I was full of that much emotion and overwhelm in that news that, I was like, I just need to get downstairs um, into my room where I can just let it all go, cry, do whatever it is that I need to do and grieve a little bit. And it was so tough. I remember sitting there in the chair and just out of reach was the button to be able to get downstairs. So to to press the button to go down the elevator and I couldn't reach it. And not only have I just been told that I couldn't walk, I was like, this is, these are the challenging moments that I'm going to have for the rest of my life. I can't even reach a lift button to get downstairs and do what I need to do. And I was like, oh my God. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks and I was defeated. I was absolutely crushed. Next minute I hear this ping and it was like the elevator ready to sort of accept me in. And I was like, what's happened here? And I lifted my head out of my hands and a, a stranger had walked past and must have seen that struggle. And without me even knowing, they'd pressed that button for me and then they walked off. I saw the back of them walking off toward maybe a bathroom or something like that. And I was like, and it was the tiniest act of kindness, the smallest act of kindness, yet it meant everything to me in that moment. And I was like, those moments are so powerful. And I think all of us individually and collectively can afford to do more of that right? It wasn't a grand gesture. He didn't, it didn't cost him a cent. It maybe cost him a couple of extra seconds to, to press the button before he went on his way. Um, yet it had the most profound impact on me because I could get downstairs and just cry. Or do. But when I got downstairs, I realized I didn't need to cry anymore because somehow he'd restored my faith or belief in myself. And I th- kept thinking to myself, when I'm well enough to do so, 
I need to be able to, I don't know, pay for this kindness. And there were so many moments like that throughout my struggle in life that these small acts made the biggest difference. And I thought when I'm well enough to do so, I need to give back. And so when I was well enough, I, I started in pursuit of that, giving back whatever I could. Um, and very quickly and, and very organically and accidentally that sort of caught wind. So people, I guess, recognized my story. Um, and I guess it was inspiring to, to a, a set few people. So they started engaging in acts and it's now, yeah, grown into 4 million, um, which is fantastic, which I think just, you know, makes a point, like you just got to start somewhere, right? Like I never intended that, um, you know, it's my full-time job. I travel the world now as a motivational speaker, but really it's less about the story and more about what that audience member or whoever reads a book or whatever um, feels at the end of it. I don't want people to think that I'm amazing. I want them to think that they are and that their acts matter. Um, and so I guess that's my job now. Um, you know, uh, as the movement started, as I said, it was a side project to my full-time job in sport, which I loved, um, and then just got invited everywhere to share my story and to, to promote kindness. So um, it's it's now registered charity here in Australia, as well as the US. Um, we're piloting some programs in the UK at the moment, um, and hopefully it'll be New Zealand and, and other countries after that. So very accidentally, um, very organically. I feel like it's a journey I'm no longer in control of. I've got a great board. Um, you know, I get all the credit for the organization's success because I'm the founder and I'm not going to say I don't deserve it, but there are many other people who have made this um, a reality and made it into what it is today. So um, haven't certainly haven't done it alone. How do you grow, you know, this and, and how do you be able to step back your story and as you say the kindness factory is the kindness factory could it be the day that when someone links into the kindness factory they don't know you they don't know your name that's my goal for that's it. your goal yeah. yeah yeah i think how do we um, get there um it's a it's a riddle that i can't solve alone um but you know my goal is that 20 years down the line someone goes yeah i love kindness factory how did who even like how did that even begin like i'd love for that to happen um because i think for it to be a success or for us to see kindness it needs to be bigger than one person and so there's a strategy that we've got, you know, for me, I thought I was probably very naive thinking it might be a two-year journey to get me detached from it. So I'd still be involved, but my story isn't the entirety of the movement. But through talking to experts and marketing and people far more, you know, that way minded than what I am, it's a five-year journey at the moment that we're on, a uh, five to ten-year journey they even suggested. So, um, you know, I... I I'm a very accidental speaker. I'm not a gifted speaker. I just got to, I just have a very unique story and people love hearing it. And so, but it takes its toll too to get up pretty much every day um, and to have to relive the things that I've been through to have the impact that we're having. It takes its toll. So um, I'm an introvert, not an extrovert, which surprises a lot of people because of my career. But I finish the talk and then it's, you know, into the hotel room or back home or whatever it is and it's just silence. And that's how I recharge. Um, I don't love going, like I, I do a lot of, you know, social outings um, for work and, and personal and all those sorts of things. And I enjoy them to a certain degree, but how I recharge is just by being by myself or with a very trusted person, partner, friend, whomever. Um, but yeah, I think it's a, it's a strategy. Um, you know, we have got a lot of help this year from some marketing experts who are helping us to transition toward that, but we're not ready for it yet. Um, but I don't think that day can come soon enough. I don't think I'll be speaking in two years' time. I think that's when I need to shift into a different gear of life and probably prioritise myself a little bit more um, and the people who are closest to me and things like that. But at this point in time, um, it's a privilege that I don't take lightly and, and I'll do it as best and as much as I can while being kind to myself, I think. Seth Maxwell, welcome to episode four of What's Your Cause? Thank you so much for having me. Um, you were nominated by um, Kat uh, Cashel, and she, a uh, wonderful lady, doing an amazing thing, bringing kindness to the world one day at a time. Um, and she nominated you as an next guest. So um, I'm really happy to have you. Um, thank you so much for your time. Um, and like I said, everything else, we just jumped straight into it. So, Seth, what's your cause? Yeah, well, it's actually kind of maybe what's your causes. Uh, my story starts in one place and like most people kind of goes all over and ends in another. So uh, to give you, I guess, some background and context, I I'm 34. I live in Los Angeles and right now I am currently leading 
concurrently two different organizations. Uh, one I started when I was 19 called The Thirst Project, which uh, is working to end the global water crisis. And I can kind of talk more about that. But the other is Legacy Youth Leadership. And Legacy was born out of Thirst Project, actually. But our mission is to help predominantly lower income communities and uh, students from within those communities of color develop specific leadership skills. So things like communication, public speaking, organization and strategic planning, fundraising, skills they can use in their personal lives, their academic careers, but really of interest to me to make an impact on any issue or cause they care about. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of currently leading both orgs, but long term, we'll probably start to look for my replacement at Thirst Project uh, in the next year or so and pass that baton. And at that point, you know, we'll have done that for almost 15 years. So it'll be exciting to let someone else kind of come in and break it and build it differently and see where we can go while I focus on continuing to build legacy. But um, yeah, it's exciting. And focusing a little bit just on Tours Project, where it kind of, you know, all began for you as um, as you say, 19 years of age. Um, and you think, oh, you know what? I'll just go about trying to solve the world um, water crisis um, because that's what you do when you're 19, yeah? Every 19-year-old is just sitting there going, yeah, that's what I'm going to do, you know? And, and I'll pick something just probably big enough, you know, just to see if I can do that. Talk me through what, where, where that came from, why you jumped into that, um, and then we can talk about some of the, you know, some of the things you've been able to do through it. Yeah, I mean, the, the funny thing is, you know, when you're 19, you don't know what you don't know. And so, uh, you know, I learned about the global water crisis from a friend who uh, was actually a photojournalist. And she was the first person to expose me and then educate me about what it was. And for context, if you're not familiar, you know, at, at that point in time, over 15 years ago now, there were about 1.1 billion people in the world who just didn't have access to basic, safe, clean drinking water. And, you know, it wasn't just a big number. What it really practically meant was that in communities around the world, typically women and kids would walk from their homes to whatever standing water sources were available. So in communities around the world, that looks like ponds, rivers, swamps, but open, unprotected sources that are shared with animals who drink and defecate in the same water sources that people drink from. And so consequently, people contract really easily preventable waterborne diseases, things like you know diarrhea or dysentery. Um, but we found that you know we could build fresh water wells, spring protection systems, rainwater harvesting systems in communities that didn't have access to safe water to bring it to people and for relatively inexpensive and, and that you know to do so sustainably would make a really huge impact on disease, on the opportunity for people to go to school and get an education. And so when I was 19 and learned about this, I started talking to my friends. We started a group in LA aimed at just raising awareness of this issue. Uh, within about a month, we had started speaking to other friends at other schools who helped us start similar groups there. And in about a month, we had three different schools that did fundraisers and raised over $12,000, which was kind of the first time we realized there was pretty tremendous capacity in young people around this issue that really nobody was activating. And so we created the Thirst Project to do just that. There are you know, lots of great water organizations in the world. That's not particularly unique. Um, but what is unique is that Thirst Project really is the world's largest youth-led water org. So you know, this school year, we might work with you know, a couple hundred thousand high school and college students across the world um, at you know, about six to 700 campuses in any given school year who do things like walks or dances or video game tournaments specifically to raise awareness of this issue and money to build projects. Uh, and so the organization commits to give 100% of all the money that students raise uh, to funding projects. So we have a pretty incredible group of donors led by our board and sponsors who pay for all the operating expenses for the org. But since we started, those students in 14 years have helped bring about 600,000 people in 13 countries safe water. And, you know, globally, the number of people without safe water has gone from 1.1 billion to just about 700 million. So while the global population has risen dramatically, the number of people without safe water in the world has been cut by almost a third. Uh, so it is an issue we believe we will see the end of, not just in our lifetimes, maybe in the next 15, 20 years, just a question of how quickly we can kind of move that ball down the field as a global community. 
it's an amazing example to everyone around the world, young, who are sitting there maybe going, I really feel passionate about that, but what can I do? Well, you can do something if you just, you know, are able to speak about it. And obviously you're a good storyteller and that always helps. Storytelling always helps. But if you can, you know, have a go at something, come around and try and, and rally something in there that you can have an outcome, which is fantastic. And that's where it's kind of leading me into legacy youth leadership. So can we talk a little bit about that and how that came from Tours Project and, and why and, and where, what's the, um, you know, what's the objective of that and the aim? Yeah, absolutely. Well, like I said, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of really great water organizations working to address the global water crisis, which is great because no one agency can possibly bring, you know, the remaining 700 million people that don't have safe water still safe water. Um, but, you know, while I still absolutely believe the global water crisis is probably the single most pressing uh, health and human services, like humanitarian crisis we face as a global community. I also believe not only is it incredibly solvable, I, I believe we will see the end of it, at least in this format. You know, like I said, not just in our lifetimes, uh, pretty soon, 20 years is, is not a terribly long time. So what's interesting is, you know, while working to address that issue is not super unique, uh, what is and always was is that, you know, we were young and we worked with the people we knew, which was other students, young people. And in doing that for a decade, we got to know just some of the most incredible, like I said, innovative, selfless uh, young people from a whole range of different backgrounds and places. And a few years ago, I started asking our team that worked with our students a different question than I'd asked them the majority of the time we worked with them, which was, how do we raise more money from these students, right? That was always our singular goal was, how do we raise money from these students so that we can build these projects, um, which is, you know, inherently noble. But I started asking instead, man, what is the value that we create in the lives of these students and, and young people? It was always very easy to point to and measure the impact the students made, right? How much money did they raise? How many water projects did we build? How many people were served? What was the reduction of waterborne disease rates over time? Those things were really easy to manage or, or measure, but we had never really tried to define or measure the impact we made in the lives of these you know, growing numbers of students every year. But we knew we were making impact, if only for the fact that I would receive every year cards or emails from students who I had never met before I mean, quite literally, to quote one, said, like, thank you so much for starting Thirst Project. If it wasn't for Thirst Project, I don't know what the highlight of my senior year would have been, which is, like, incredibly touching, but it's also very qualitative. And what we realized as we worked with a group of social scientists here in California and asked them to study cohorts of students in our programs and point to the change that was affected in their lives. What skills were they developing? How are they growing or changing as a result of specific aspects of our programs? What we found was students, we were coaching them to become better fundraisers, which meant we were coaching them to become better communicators and public speakers. We were coaching them to, again, yes, develop the skill of raising money and fundraising, but also how to organize and match the skills of their friends or peers to different roles on a team that might organize an event. Um, there was social emotional develop development that was happening. And there were about 14 different hard and soft skills that were really important that students were developing as a direct result of specific aspects of our work. And we realized that, interestingly enough, the students who probably needed that support and those skills to be developed the most were probably the students that we were working with the least, which would have been students from lower income communities who probably didn't have the capacity to raise very much money. Um, not that we weren't or like were intentionally excluding working with any school populations, but we knew there is not just in the United States, in virtually every country, uh, you know, income and ethnicity, first and foremost, are unfortunately inextricably tied in almost every community. And beyond that, that students in lower income communities, at least for the United States, we know typically by the time they're sixth graders have had six times less access to these kinds of extracurricular leadership development opportunities than their middle or upper income peers and counterparts. And we were like, man, we know we're helping develop these students in ways that these are skills they can use in their future careers, in their academic lives. Um, but the students who need it the most are probably students we're not working with. And so 
we also realized that those skills weren't really cause specific, right? Like we were using it to make an impact on the water crisis, but students could use these skills to make an impact on any cause or any issue they cared about. And like I said, I, I might be naive. It might be, you know, uh, a young person's idealism, but I do believe we'll see the end of the water crisis. And so what was interesting to me was, man, if we were to, number one, be intentional about developing programs to produce these results, to, you know, produce these skills and develop them in students, which at first were happening kind of just by accident as a byproduct of the work, but to really intentionally develop for or solve for that. And if we were to disproportionately target school communities that have historically not had as much access to these programs, we can make a huge impact, first and foremost, in the lives of the students. And it'd be interesting to see if they could then apply those skills around other issues or causes they cared about. And that was really what gave birth to Legacy. So, you know, that's obviously a very long, complicated explanation, but in short, Legacy's mission is to build the next generation of young leaders, um, specifically you know, we're targeting like lower income communities, communities of color uh, who have historically not had as much access to these programs and helping them develop these skills, you know, become better communicators, fundraisers, organizers that they can use in their personal lives, but also to change the world, right? In any issue or cause they care about. Um, and even that is very broad. You might go like, well, okay, how do you do that? Uh, so we really have two primary programs that we run that accomplish that. The first is our leadership program. The second is our speaker program. Uh, each of those programs, when I say program, right, if you're familiar with Masterclass, I hate the analogy because it's not perfect, but it's sort of a, a crude analogy. It's sort of like Masterclass for helping students develop these skills of leading. So the programs are built to be part digital in that they're part uh, pre-record video lessons and content and activities and, uh, you know, a progression that students move through different modules that's all housed in a platform where they can interact with students in their cohort. But they're also half live sessions. So whether that is live virtually or live in person when we run the programs at schools in person, student groups as cohorts go through these four-week programs and develop these skills. And then on the other side of those programs, they apply those skills by taking action around whatever cause or issue they care about. So the leadership program, for example, is organized into four tracks, time, money, voice, and vote. How do you use your time, your money, your voice, or your vote to change the outcome of an issue that you care about, any issue? We're pretty fiercely apolitical. So it's, uh, it's not, hey, this is who you should vote for, what party, how, what kind of legislation. Um, but even just realizing, you know, do you realize most high school students, college students probably don't even think about voting or think of it as something that is a thing they can do when they are, you know, graduated high school or, you know, adults. But the reality is all of us make votes or cast our voice for votes every day. When you're in a car and you're trying to figure out with a group of friends what restaurant you want to eat at, you are essentially voting for the thing you want to do for. Uh, if you are at a school, even as a high school student, there are school elections you can vote in. And so getting students to begin to realize their ability to participate in shaping their communities and systems with that as a tool is really important. Um, but again, fiercely apolitical, uh, nonpartisan. But uh, as I said, it's been really interesting to see as students move through these and take action, uh, what the impact has been, not just in you know the causes they're supporting, but in their lives specifically. So Zian, welcome to What's Your Cause. Thank you for having me, Mick. I'm thrilled to be here. And Look, I'm thrilled to have you. And and uh, as you know from this, the, the concept in the podcast, you were nominated by Seth Maxwell. My favorite person alive. Yeah, he's an incredible person, very generous with his time. And we had a, a lovely conversation about the amazing work that uh, that he does. And then he um, was very quick to kind of put you as the next person who he felt would be who I should talk to. So, Ziad, what's your cause? It's a big question, my friend. Um, and, and transparently, I think something that I... I uh... I, I think about often, right, insofar as I think that it's probably evolved and still evolving. But if I think about, like, the root of it, like, what's my cause? I mean, like, as, like, cheesy and trite as it sounds, like, I, I hope, right, to leave the world a little bit better than I found it in some way. But I think more specifically, um, a lot of my work has been centered around this idea that I believe the expert on any reality is the person closest to that reality. And I think the world looks better when we hear from more voices. And I think the world looks better when we 
are representative of the communities that we care about, right? Um, in leadership, right? And, and, and when we follow the lead of the folks most affected, right, on issues, I think we're a lot closer to solutions, right? And so a lot of my work has been about this idea of how do we empower more diverse young voices to have a seat at the table? And how do we build community to hopefully work towards solutions and work towards telling stories that make more people feel empowered and heard and seen and inspired and I really believe in the power of community. I believe in the power of storytelling and I believe in the power of equity, right? In so far as not just including more diverse voices, but meaningfully giving voices decision-making authority and power and redistributing of power such that, you know, the current hegemonic power structures that exist are challenged, are, are disrupted, and such that we hopefully have leadership that, that instills more faith and instills more hope in all of us. I think what... I think most people, if not all people are feeling is that the, the current status quo isn't working, right? Um, and, and so I guess my cause is to disrupt that status quo um, through following the lead of diverse young people around me who are far smarter, far more compassionate than I, um, and to learn as much as I can along the way in community with as many people as possible. Long story short, right, I started Redefy, you know, uh, when I was around 14 and was this idea I never expected it to take off right and it did in so far as like it resonated with people and suddenly I found myself in rooms that I didn't even know existed right at 15 16 years old at the White House with industry leaders with decision makers at a very young age where I realized in many of those rooms how often conversations were happening about young people without talking to us and I became aware of the fact that they were youth experts like you know, many decades my senior. And I was like, why do they exist? Like, we can speak for ourselves, right? And I became really riled up about this idea that, like, look, I had worked, to my point, with thousands of young people from around the world that are far smarter, cooler, more articulate, have overcome far more barriers than I. And why were they not in these rooms with me, right? And, 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 why, and why were there not enough of us in these rooms? And so my junior year of high school, I came up with this idea with, and, and got together with some friends to act on it to say, the world looks better when diverse young people have a seat at the table. I believe this to be true. I know this to be true. And I believe that if people want to connect with diverse young people, they should work with us to do that, right? And so I had, we had this idea of Juve Consulting and, and got started with it. Um, and again, thought it'd be a small side project. Had no idea what the heck marketing was or any of this world. Just thought there should be a way that if people wanted to work to understand Gen Z, they could work with Gen Z to do that. And I felt really fortunate, again, and privileged to have a tremendous network of Gen Zers that I thought were well-equipped to do that type of work. And so got started, and here I am almost seven years later with this company being my whole damn life. When we talk then and we look at the, the next generation, which is what, Alpha? Yeah. There's Alpha, the generation after generation. So yeah. if you think about this, Right. That's 2010, correct me if I'm wrong, it is 2010, born in and around 2010 and after. So they would be coming up to now, more, I've got three kids. So one of my kids, two of my kids. How old are, are your now. kids? So I've got like, I've got um, the eldest is 14 and I've got then my 12 year old daughter. So I've got a 14 year old daughter, 12 year old daughter, and I've got a 10 year old son. Okay. So like very on the cusp of Gen Z and Alpha. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, yes. correct. Very much. Yeah, very much so. And if you think then of Alpha, right, and you think about even yourself, right? So at Tordine, you were looking at Redefy, but before that, you were, you know, you know, you were beginning to be really social conscious and, and so forth and looking around the world at what's going on. So if you think about that, that's now at that age, you know, so these, these young people are now coming into that age, you know, to be to, to be able to do that. Are you having conversations with people like that? Are you seeing that now? Yeah, um, yeah. Tremendously so. Like I give speeches to, you know, high schoolers and middle schoolers. And I do this activity where I ask kids to write down one thing that they would change about the world and one thing they can do tomorrow to start changing that thing. And it can be as small as, as, as dress code and as big as climate change, right? Um, and each year that I do this activity, I, I continue to be absolutely blown away by the answers, right? Like, had you done this activity when I was 13, 14, we would have written things like, 
you know, world peace, you know, gender equality, right? These were things that we were conscious of and familiar with. And, and, and you know, I have kids now telling me about genome editing, or, you know, and I have kids now telling me about specific water rights in, in different tribal regions of the Amazon, right? And I have, you know, kids so articulately passionate about such hyper-specific, really salient issues in ways that I was certainly not conscious of when I was 13 and 14. I didn't have the vocabulary to talk about a lot of these issues when I was 13, 14, right? And I, I am certainly seeing, you know, when we look at applications for Juve Consulting, people like, you know, the number of kids who've already mobilized, organized, gotten started, started something, right, gotten involved. I mean, every year you see more and more and more and more kids, right? Not waiting, getting started right now and taking action. And on one hand, it's incredibly inspiring and encouraging. On the other hand, you hope that it doesn't burn them out and, and you hope that they don't lose that zeal and you hope that it doesn't mean that they haven't gotten to live their youth, right? And you also hope that it comes from a good place rather than because of some sort of cookie cutter mold of what people think perfection looks like, right? I, I had hope that any activating comes from a real place of trying to resolve a pain point as opposed to trying to check off something off on a checklist, right? Um, and so it's always a, a, a push and a pull there. And when I talk to a lot of young people who ask me for advice, I'm like, I'm not qualified to give you advice, right? Like, I wouldn't do what I did again. I wouldn't recommend anyone following my footsteps, but I also don't know enough about you to give you advice. I think you need so much context to give someone helpful advice. But I, what I would say is in my own journey, if I look back, I do regret that I spent more times, I spent more time on stages calling myself young and not enough time being young. And, and I won't get that back. And, and, and I do hope that we don't lose the zeal, right? Because we burned ourselves out at the onset. Lewis Carr, what's your cause? My cause is to help people wherever they are, whatever level they are on, get to the next level. So whether that is through education, whether that is through knowledge, whether that through employment, I want to help people get to the next level. I want to be their waymaker. Can you just explain waymaker and what it means to you and what it means to others? Uh, waymaker to me is someone who provides a way, someone who sees something in you that you don't see in yourself and helps you achieve that with no expectations for a return on their investment. I take it that you have had your share of Waymakers in your life. I've had 19 Waymakers in my life. 19? Well, you, you keep a number, eh? I do. Uh, the reason I know that number is because I went back through my life and found 19 people who today, I still don't understand why they did what they did. But that action that they took changed my life forever. When did you read, like, you know, this, you talk Waymaker, okay? And when you've talked about when you were younger and, and people have, you know, looked at you and invested in you and given you this really great kind of, you know, commentary and feedback and, and, and said you're special and everything else like that. But when was it that you really realized that these 19 people had been Waymakers? Like, obviously, along the way, you know, they're doing things for you. But the whole concept of Waymaker, when did that really kind of resonate with you and kind of, you know, you sat back and went, OK, I'm going to list these names because you got a, you got a number, you know what I mean? And you've really, that means that you've taken your time to like think about this and list these people that have had these effect on you. When I wrote a book called Dirty Little Secret, that's when it came to me. Because, and, and I wrote this book basically as every ordinary person can do extraordinary things. That's a dirty little secret. Because people believe that in order to be extraordinary, you've got to be extraordinary. I mean, you just can't be an ordinary person that just happens to do extraordinary things. So I wrote this book to give people knowledge that they are the dirty little secrets, which is knowledge, understanding, 
relationships, information that normal, ordinary people can have that gives them the tools to do extraordinary things. And I thought back to how did I learn this? Oh, it was a way maker. How did I do that? Oh, it was a way maker. How did I achieve this? It was a way maker. How did I get these jobs? It was a way maker. How did I achieve this position? It was a way maker. So no one, when people say I pull myself up by my bootstraps, the question is who gave you the boots? You are a man who pays it forward in lots of ways, yeah? Um, can you tell me a little bit about your foundation with your interns as well? Because I, I, I love this sure. around employment. I'm big into around employment and helping people, but I love this with your internship. Can you just explain a little bit what you do there? Sure, sure, Mick. First of all, I, I didn't want to go to college. Uh, and uh, I, I, I lucked up and was an all-American athlete, all right? And, and I could go to college for free, all right? <laughs> <laughs> you ran to college. You ran to college. I ran to college. And uh, when I got in school, uh, uh, my coaches told me I had to have an internship. I didn't even know what that was. What is an internship? So uh, I ended up working at uh, a local radio station. And it was a great experience. And when I got out of school, first thing people asked me, where did you intern? Why are they asking me that? Uh, and I would tell them. And they were like, oh, what did you do there? And what I don't think a lot of students realize, if, if you don't have any real work experience, all right, which most don't because they went to school, right? So they're not unless they went to school and work, but most are just going to school. So that internship does a lot for you. It teaches you, number one, what you may not ever want to do in your life. Like, oh, that's horrible. I'm never going to do that. And it also gives you an opportunity to find out what you want to do in life. And then the next thing is it teaches you some basic fundamental skills, everything from discipline, how to show up in the workplace, how to be responsible for being on time. And as I tell a lot of my interns, it gives you stamina to work eight hours a day, all right? Because you usually <laughs> take a nap in the afternoon when you're in college, okay? <laughs> so it teaches you some of those basic fundamentals that sort of, it's part of your fundamental foundation for life as you get that sort of what I say, college diploma, in my opinion, which is the key to the stadium of life. So that's why internships are so important because it, it sort of helps you build your foundation. And your internships um, would be helping, you know, young people of color who have, you know, maybe don't have that, um, that path in front of them. Maybe it's a bit more difficult, whether it's to do with socially economic background and so forth yes. as well. And I think that's what I love about it as well, because sometimes, you know, it's terrible when you can look at something you want, but you feel it's unreachable. Right. Yeah. But and you're making and we try to get some of those obstacles out the way. You know, most students of color can't afford to work free. They need to be paid because, you know, they, they need to try to generate money to help them in school, whether that's for books or for travel, whatever the case may be. So they need to be paid. So we wanted to make sure that students who came into the Lewis Carr Foundation were able to get money for the hours that they were spending at these different employers. When you talk about diversity and inclusion with, you know, you know, companies and corporates and so forth, how do you support them and to make sure that it is not just down the order that it is front and center of a company's DNA? Well, I think you have to help companies understand the value to them. When anything happens that is different, that they're not comfortable or used to, what value do they get out of it? And with a diverse workforce, you have a different type of thought leadership, all right? Because they're bringing a different type of experience to the workplace, all right? They're bringing a different culture to the workplace. 
And remember, my motto is the more you learn, the more you grow your life. The more you grow your life, the more you change the world. So there you have it. I really hope you enjoyed this episode as we uh, went back um, to the to the beginnings and uh, the first six episodes. Um, and uh, yeah, I look forward to bringing you many, many more causes uh, in the future. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please subscribe and share. If you want to follow me on Instagram or on Twitter, you will see the handles in the show notes. This podcast was produced and edited by Mick Thank you.